Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> it, Chapter 2. Something happens to you when you leave this town. The farther away, the hazier it all gets. But me, I never left. I remember all of it. We made an oath. I swear. If it isn't dead. If it ever comes back. We'll come back to you. We didn't stop it. Pennywise. The cloud. <laughs> we can't let it happen again. Returned to Derry after two long years away. And the Losers Club has grown somewhat as 27 years of movie time have elapsed. With us in the Chinese restaurant once again are Brendan Agnew of Synapse. How's it going? Debbie Morse. Let's kill this fucking clown. And Karu Nagisa. I am an eater of worlds. Of sequentially yours. Hello. Hey there. And this time around, the instant adulation of the first film has been somewhat muted, with the original's 86% freshness dropping to an average of 62%, leaving us with a much more of a mixed clown's bag of tricks to rummage through in an attempt to establish its strengths and weaknesses. So let us first approach this frightening finger buffet with a positivity plate before we get into the elements that were a little more hit and miss. And our angle then is going to be to take on each element and weigh up both good and bad rather than just proclaiming them solely one or the other. It's a complex way of handling things and it wouldn't fit into every movie. But for this one, which has disappointed some and delighted others, I feel like it's the best approach. So for the first 20 minutes, allowing for anything truly satisfying on a personal level to be put on the table, what aspects of It, Chapter 2, really appealed to you? And throwing this one out to anyone. I think Stan Uris's letter at the end was a work of absolute genius. There's a lot of things that are hard to nail down about the ending of this story, and uh, they they kind of know that. There's There's more than one reference to the the character who's definitely not Stephen King from the book um who has problems with endings and King himself has some of that and a it was always going to be tricky coming back to this um after the relatively simple hook of 
kids have to fight monster that eats kids because no one else is going to fight the kid eating monster, but the kids. And while there's, you know, there's a lot of stuff you can get into on getting there. Um, ending this with the, um, with the letter that Stan wrote to the losers is both very, I think, um, satisfying narratively and also threads a very tricky needle with the film's relation to, to suicide. Um, there's, there's a lot of things that I'm, you know, I'm sure I'm not qualified to, you know, comment on in terms of the, the mental space that someone deals with that going into there, but the way that it made his actions both tragic, but not victim blaming, um, that's, that's really tricky. And it also had a hell of an emotional punch. I, I think that was a, like I said, I think it's a stroke of genius. It's a really, really good beat to end the film on. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the standout of this film is Jason Ballantine's editing. Uh, Ballantine, uh, he doesn't have a huge um, career. Uh, He did the Baz Luhrmann, Great Gatsby, and apparently he was an additional editor on Mad Max Fury Road. Hmm. But the the editing on this was just absolutely gorgeous. Um, Just so many lovely match cuts and just fading from one time period into another seamlessly. I absolutely adored it. It could have overstayed its welcome, but it didn't. And, you know, my, my favorite, I think, was probably where they uh, first found the clubhouse again as adults, and the camera pans up to the uh, to the entrance, and down comes Child Bev. Mm-hmm. And that was just, oh, I love that bit. The night sky transition to the table was also just chef's kiss. Oh yeah, with the uh, with, with the, the puzzle. jigsaw puzzle. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm going to count chef's kiss as a superlative from now on, folks. We've had our quota for this year. <laughs> <laughs> I, I very much loved this movie, um, and and I would say I, it's tough to pick. Um, I, I've heard a couple of takes on the internet of how the the ending isn't satisfying, which I personally find utterly baffling because I feel like the ending they have threaded through this journey so well the idea of dealing with trauma and recovery from trauma and how you deal with that and I think that that ending was perfect given the way they have told this story every step of the way they they hit on it, the realities of dealing with trauma and recovery from trauma, and they they hit it so 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 well. They it hit it, the other night. Uh, we rewatched we rewatched part or chapter one a week before this came out. I want to say a couple of days. A couple yeah, a couple of days before well, we watched it on Tuesday, and that came out on Thursday. That's right. That's right. And it made me realize something about the story in general, which was they couldn't have defeated it as kids because you need emotional maturity to fully understand your own emotions. And I don't think as a child you have the, you can have, or it's unlikely you can have the maturity to defeat that. And so it was essential for them to come back as adults, just as it's essential. It's essential for us as, you know, as people 
that we, you know, and you can be well-adjusted kids and you can deal with, you can deal with, you know, everybody has some kind of trauma, I think. No matter, you know, best parents, best family, whatever. Everybody's got trauma because life is traumatic. Uh, we, we were looking down the uh, notes and Sharon noticed that the turtle's name is... Maturin. Oh, that's A little right. on the nose, wouldn't you say? Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that had not clicked with me before, but that's amazing. Nice. <laughs> yeah, let's, we'll come back to the turtle later, um, uh, such as we can. But, uh, yeah, no, I actually agree that um, it feels like, as children, they couldn't have uh, beaten Pennywise, almost because they could believe that they could defeat him once but they couldn't believe that they could defeat him once and for all whereas he'd taken so much by the time they actually finally face him down as adults that they're like, they're so we have had it with you that they then had to beat him if that makes sense mm. well also yeah. we mentioned this when we were discussing the first film but the fact that the people who stand the best chance of hurting him when they're kids are Beverly and Bill because they have experience of emotions that are beyond their years. Mm. And when they've all grown up and, and got those new emotional experiences that give them a wider range of weaponry yeah. with which to fight Pennywise, who so far has been... He's, he's a very one-trick pony. He's using their own fear against them. Mm. If they have other emotions that can be used to counteract that fear, they strip him of his power. So what you're saying is they all went off and had 27-year Rocky montages of training their emotional versatility. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, yes. Basically, yes. Taking hard there knocks and recovering. I mean, it. I think for me, the, the elements of it that I loved unreservedly were, first of all, the casting choices. Mm. Um, yes. The... The scripting choices that go along with those casting choices is something else, and I'll discuss that as we, we go a little bit further on. But in terms of the actual casting, I I can't think of anybody that didn't feel right. In general, the calibre of actors that they picked for this, I thought, was um, absolutely top-notch. Bill Hader was amazing. The, the potential that they had in Jessica Chastain and, and James McAvoy and, frankly, everybody else felt as though they fit their characters. So from that perspective, I thought they did a really good job. And I also thought that the the shining light for me was Richie's arc. The shining? Yes. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the the way that he progresses from uh, pretty much a background character sort of in the book i mean he's he's as prominent as any of them when they're doing the individual stories but when it comes to the big set pieces richie does not tend to be doing as much as everyone else uh, as, as certainly the, like the front characters it's it's all about bill ben and beverly and the fact that he got this subtle understated uh, character progression that came out of left field and just completely blew me away. 
and it was pulled off with such a plum by Bill Hader. I was really, really impressed. I was unendingly impressed with his his subtlety and the subtlety and nuance of his performance. Yeah. Also with the casting, not only did I love that they did such an excellent job of casting, but that they highlighted it. Like, there are so many scenes in this that are just, hey, look at this actor. Isn't this actor the perfect version of the of an older older version of that character? Yeah, a lot of the editing you were talking about really does highlight that well. When um, when, when Eddie's in the uh, in the drugstore and his face superimposes on his face, and so you've got the the younger and old yeah. versions is really. I think they might even have like Richie make a Bill Hader-esque expression as a kid um, yeah. when he's asking if he, <laughs> if he's still handsome. Um, but to, uh, to kind of like pile on to how much I liked Richie, I think one of the things that really makes him such a, a great part of this film is that the way they deal with his character really underlines the difference between the child version of fear and the adult version of fear um, because, like like you said, the kids couldn't have defeated it for good because you need to understand how banal evil can be and how small it really is to really uh, to, to really basically do what they do at the end of the film, um, which is, again, part of the the ending things is tricky. And I, I think that that is is a really great moment of them coming full circle from the the very small-minded very hateful bullying treatment of adrian mellon at the beginning of this film and coming to terms with the fact that even something that's a a cosmic horror entity that feeds upon toxic emotions at the end of the day it's just a bully wearing a mask and it can still be frightful and awful and destructive but it puts the audience in a very different space and it takes the characters to a very different space that allows that, you know, that finale to occur. The, the way it plays with audience emotion in fear, it, it, it has you fear different things in this to, to kind of tap into adult fears versus child fears. There's a lot in this that makes you step into the shoes of an adult or protective adult or parent watching a child come to harm as opposed to relating with the children that are coming to harm in the first film. And so it's a very different kind of fear that I think it pulls off very well. I also, this is uh, tangentially linked, loved the imagery, the actual visual storytelling behind when they face it down at the end and Pennywise stretches his mouth as wide as he possibly can and those deadlights come dancing around behind, but the way that the camera positions itself, Pennywise is a puppet, he's a marionette, he's a mask, and the lights are the the real deal, the the actual thing we should be focusing on. Mm. There's so much in the film that you can read that is not necessarily flagged, that is not necessarily said. You could consider it a failing of the film to not say all this stuff out loud, or you could look at it as an extremely rich and textured goldmine that people will, over time, be able to dig through. And it takes its time with doing that, uh, but it allows you to read a hell of a lot into what's going on rather than simply saying out loud, it's not a clown, it just looks like a clown. Mm, yeah. And that what, what you were saying, Brendan, about the, the differences between childhood fears and adult fears, one of the other things that I really loved about this was the, the snippets of revisiting the kids and seeing 
them experience another Pennywise encounter, but the fear that they go through is older. And it's it's something that is a lot less straightforward than here is a scary thing that's chasing you. So for Eddie, it's the it's the fear that comes with realizing he doesn't have the courage to protect his mother. That's the fear in that moment, and that is much more complex than the simple fear of the leper that he's experienced before. Uh, for Bill, it's fear of his own grief and his own loss and his parents' grief and loss, and that is much more complex than simply this thing killed my brother. And, and his perception of his own failure, exactly, or his yeah. assumed failure. That's right. Yeah, and that that incre- the the way it cuts back and forth between them in this film, I think, managed to capture some of that. Um, one of the 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 best things that I like about the book, which is the structuring of it and the way that it cuts back and forth between the time periods. And and in the book as well, you have more historical periods too, but that creates a much more complex tapestry of this story of fear than simply, here are some kids running away from something, here are some adults beating something up. It's also kind of perfect that Bill Hader um, should be in this film so much about fear when he played fear in Inside Out. My whole life, I've dealt with, uh, you know, having to take everything from I, if I knew there was a big test to uh, getting on the school bus and doing that by myself or any of those things um, I just uh, didn't think I would be able to do it and there was always a little voice in my head telling me uh, here's all the things that could go wrong and as you get older th- that that sticks around and uh, so when I was Boy, in my mid-30s was when I officially tried to do something about it because it was affecting my job as a performer on live television, Um, which is like, for someone with massive anxiety, that's a crazy job to have. Um, But I loved my job, so I was going to figure out how to to deal with this. And what helped me was was learning that um, it, it doesn't really go away you manage it and instead of pushing away your anxiety and I always imagine my anxiety as this little monster that would kind of attack my face or pull up my ears or you know uh, and instead of pushing that thing away and trying to fight it I would just go hey oh hey buddy you know it was like a little uh, monkey and I would just kind of go okay here let's sit on my shoulder sit on my shoulder let's hang out let's just chill out you know there it is and so every time I would get nervous, I would just become friends with it. I know that sounds kind of corny maybe, or a little silly, but it's true. It, it, it helped it kind of alleviate, you know, that, that fear. And, uh, and I, so I don't push it away, put your arm around it and go, oh, there you are. I, I knew you'd be there someplace. Um, let's go take that test. Let's go get on the bus. Let's figure it out. And I wish I had done that when I was younger. Uh, I think I would have done better in school. I think I would have um, been a little bit better in social situations. And, uh, and I, I wouldn't have lived life uh, afraid. And so not fighting it, you know, that's a big thing. And the other thing I learned was to take out the, <clears throat> the narrative of it, meaning 
Oh my gosh, I have a test. I'm nervous because I have a test. Take out, I have a test. And just go, oh, I'm nervous. And then you say, oh, I'm just nervous. And just think about that. Just go, oh, I'm, I'm panicking right now. I have anxiety. And that's fine. Uh, a lot of people have it. And then you go, oh, okay, that's, oh, I have a test. Okay, but I don't have a test. I don't have anything. I'm just nervous. And then it'll kind of, this is me nervous. And then it'll kind of go away. But you can, you can manage it and you can figure it out. And, and uh, doing it when you're younger is the best. To have those tools when you're younger is, is uh, indispensable. And I wish I had done it. But if I can do it at the age of, when I figured it out really was when I was 37, uh, you guys can figure it out, um, I think, as well. All right, we got this. And I was talking to Sharon about this for several days, and re I realized that we've actually seen a film recently, a wonderful textured film, where uh, a character keeps their fear and anxiety uh, on their shoulder, but it's attached to something that's kind of brilliant and is actually incredibly powerful as well, but that they take care of that thing and, uh, you know, like a child or, uh, you know, ultimately nurturing themselves or that aspect of themselves. Psyduck in hmm. Detective Pikachu, yeah. a film that just keeps on giving. <laughs> Good job, Psyduck. Where's my hat? So, I thought of it that way, but that's lovely. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Um, so, so yeah, I, I love the idea that as an adult, we call our fears anxieties, but it's really just kind of a very much related aspect of that. You know, that, that we are really experiencing a slightly more complicated version of fear because it's hooked onto other things like guilt, mm. and uh, it's. It's not as pure as when you're a child, which would be why Pennywise ha finds more difficulty in evoking it. Yeah, and that honestly is a, a, a good example of one of the ways that you can tackle anxiety, and that's to simplify it. If you're feeling it, to say to yourself, okay, in this particular instance, what am I scared of? What am I afraid of? If the answer is honestly, well, nothing really then it makes it easier to kind of leave that anxiety behind you and move on from it, or it can. I think uh, Bill Skarsgård just absolutely knocked it out of the park in this one, even more so than the first one. There's, I could see Pennywise very much trying to, or having to adjust specifically for you know kids in 2016 who tend to be a lot more savvy and also a lot more empathetic, and he plays on both of those really, really well. I think his ambiguous age works really to his advantage in, in the pair of films, because in the first one, he feels like a threatening teenager to these young kids, and in this one, he's a little bit younger than them, and so it shifts the power balance. Yeah. Hmm. This does really cement Pennywise as one of the great, like, horror, iconic horror villains. Um, I'm also, in terms of just sheer adulation, um, we talked a little bit about how much I love just all the cool monster shit in the first movie, and then they went and put even more cool monster shit in this movie. <laughs> and I was just sitting there, like, with the with the Patrick Hawkstetter zombie and the, the yeah. giant 
the giant naked lady and just all the monster stuff that even if they were somewhat recycling things from other movies, it felt it, it felt similar to how they would have like references to old universal monster movies in the in the book, except obviously updated for pop culture savvy Richie Tozier and modern kids who would have grown up with the the 80s icons. And so, yeah, you, you got to be fucking kidding me. I, I loved that. When you said the giant naked lady, Sharon mimed afterwards, giant naked lady. And I wanted to actually butt in, oh, a giant naked woman. No, <laughs> not like you think. No. I, I, the old woman. I kind of, I visualised something and thought that wasn't in this. And then I realised I was thinking of the woman in Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. All right, yes. <laughs> Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, by the way. We're doing a show on that. That is a good movie. Guess I'm going to have to see it. Yeah, same. <laughs> And hearing good things, so awesome. Okay, so let's get around to uh, point by point um, aspects of this film, and we will weigh up the good and the bad on these because uh, from from now on, it's going to be more kind of murky waters where it's not as clear cut because there's going to be problems with almost everything, but there's also going to be strengths with almost everything, I suspect. So. We begin with the killing of Adrian Mellon, which was definitely one of the first things in the original book, uh, because it starts off in the adult uh, uh, timeline. Uh, folks, if, if you haven't read, read the book, the, the way it works is the them coming back together uh, as, as adults is, the, is what kicks off the book. And then we kind of flash back to when they were kids. Um, I, I'm really pleased that they divided it the way they did in the end. Uh, it, we actually end up with kind of the reverse, the flip side of the 1990 miniseries, which was 3565 kids, adults. This is now flipped in the other way around. There's actually, it's, it's more like 6040 uh, kids, adults, yeah. which is great. But the killing of Adrian Mellon was definitely hateful and because he was gay in the original book, written in 1985. Mm-hmm. 84. 84, okay. Uh, and it has really upset a lot of people. And I think you know, we, it, it, it's justifiably upset a lot of people who weren't expecting it to come on that hard, uh, that real, that quick. Especially as Pennywise weirdly ended up as kind of a gay icon after the last movie uh, two years ago. The people were shipping him with the Babadook. I know Sharon's saying how. Um, <laughs> I, I get that, like uh, the LGBTQ community, were like, "Yeah, we're going to embrace this fear. We're going to this this freak, this outsider. You know, he's kind of a badge for us." It's like, no, he hates very bitterly. So uh, uh, doing this kind of reset a lot of people's clocks on that, and, and left them very uncertain. And for some people, it actually might have pushed them out of the movie entirely. So um, I'm going to. Put this one out there. Uh, so the killing of Adrian Mellon, how did it make you feel? And Sharon, you've obviously yeah. got a lot to well, say on this this, this opening scene was, for me, incredibly powerful. And I don't necessarily mean that in an entirely positive way, but it, it got to me so heavily that I spent maybe the first five, ten minutes of the film crying my eyes out. Mm. Um, I had not anticipated that they would use it. I certainly hadn't anticipated that they would use it so graphically. I think in the miniseries, it's it's a throwaway line, if it's mentioned at all. And like it's an after-the-fact, Mike mentions that 
that somebody was killed. There's almost no direct trauma yeah, in the miniseries. Absolutely. It's all very much after the fact. Um, so, or carnival effects. So I'd kind of almost forgotten that this was, was such a, a significant element of the book. And for Whereas me, I had read it back in 2016. You'd read it fairly recently, hadn't you? Yeah. yeah. Um, but so it, it kind of went in and it was, I thought, for what it is... I thought it was extremely well done in the sense that it conveyed the the characters involved very well. It wasn't, for me, although it was so upsetting, it didn't feel anywhere near as upsetting and offensive as the book version was because in that you don't just get the murder, you also get the whole... Um, surrounding attitude of the cops that are involved and the the homophobia that the town is steeped in is made so explicit and so graphic. And I was watching it from the perspective of they've really dialed that back. But of course, there's a lot of people who saw it who wouldn't have experience that version because they haven't read the book and for them it was too graphic and it was too traumatic and it was very much a you're using queer tragedy as a way to convey uh the tone of something that it's it's inappropriate for and I completely understand that perspective it's not necessarily one that I share I actually think that in terms of of setting out the uh the the small-town America bigotry and hatefulness and bullying that Pennywise represents and that Derry as a whole represents. I actually think that from that angle, it succeeded in what it was trying to do. But it was very upsetting and very graphic in terms of the violence that was being done and... I I had to turn away as well. I, there were bits of it that I just couldn't watch. So it, this opening was really kind of mixed bag for me in the sense that I thought it really, really worked for what they were trying to do, but in some ways it worked a little bit too well. I really appreciate after how effective this opening is because it's maybe the most upsetting thing in the whole movie because up until you have someone getting bitten by a giant monster. It's just something that could happen anywhere for no goddamn reason. Mm, and absolutely. that's, and, and, and they, they take just enough time to, they, they give you, I think even they don't do as much with the, the whole, the holistic view of like um, doing like the cops attitudes and the investigation and the dismissiveness, but they really put you on side with Adrian. Like you, the first thing he does is to like, win the contest and to give his prize to a little girl who looks sad. And so you're, you're super in the, in the empathy corner with this guy. And then this horrible thing happens. And because it's so effective, I'm really glad that that they could have made a little bit more of a thing out of it. I'm really glad that a gay man gets to rip Pennywise's fucking arm right off of him at the end of the movie. Mm -hmm. Um, Because up until that point, I mean, that's, that's something that you feel like, okay, how do we even come back from that? Because even before Pennywise killed him, this is such just a, a disgusting transgression of humanity. Mm. And this is, this is basically right where like, like I, I, 
I am fully understanding of people who are like, I don't, this doesn't work for me. Um, I get it. Like there, there are some movies that I'll see and I'm like, that's great. What are you talking about? This, the people who bounce off of it, I can totally get it. And this being, like you said, Sharon, a mixture of leaving a lot of things out from the book while also really hammering the audience first up. I I can understand why that was really off putting to people. I personally think, and and again, I totally agree, Brandon, that if, you know, if, if it's too much for someone, I get it. Um, but I, I, again, I like how it was handled that, you know, Adrian is very much a person who happens to be gay the way Mm -hmm. he's portrayed. I think it's a good, honestly, it's a good reminder you know, because I've heard a lot of people talking online and whatnot. Where did Trump come from? And all this stuff. And, you know, all the people who seem shocked by all this, you know, this, this, the, the racism and homophobia and all things that have been enabled since he's been in office. And I think this is a good reminder, a harsh reminder, but a good reminder that, uh, no, that stuff was always there. That's always been a part of, of this country. And we need to... We need to be a little more honest with ourselves about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's that, that entire scene. It it makes me uncomfortable in a way that I can't think of. Literally, I literally can't think of another horror movie scene that makes me uncomfortable in that same way. It's remarkably effective, but yeah, it's I can understand people not liking it. And quite frankly, it if we watch this the next time we watch this movie, which will probably be at home, I'm going to go make popcorn during that scene because I just. I don't think I need to see it anymore because it is that it really was that affecting for me and watching in the theater. I had a moment of, is this what this whole movie is going to be? Thankfully it wasn't, but I thought, you know, is this going to be, you know, edgelordy bullshit where we, where we beat up the queers in these horrendous ways. And thankfully that wasn't it. That scene was astonishingly uncomfortable, as much as I did love Adrian and that he was a smart-ass to the end. I mean, good for him. People, uh, one of the chief complaints about this film uh, has been that it's not scary, but this is one of the scariest fucking scenarios I can imagine. And uh, I think it's because it trips off anxiety in a way that can't be put back in the box. And then you're just kind of sitting with that for the next three hours of the movie. One of the things that got me about it was that obviously it's it's intended to be an echo of Henry Bowers and his gang and their bullying of the kids. Mm-hmm. But the the gang who beat Adrian and Don are so much worse. They're so much more empty and I think one of them is considerably younger, which mm-hmm. somehow made it feel more terrifying and if it's missing anything I think something that kind of made it a little bit more clear that this violence this aggression is a manifestation of the town rather than it just being about this pack of psychos Mm. rather Uh rather than it being a few bad apples yeah yeah that's where it fell down for me uh, insofar as you could make a very solid reading and play on this from the book and from the uh, text of the film that this is the guys who get away with murder, the guys who get away with terrible things. It, it's, a, it's a hate crime, but it's specifically a crime motivated by and fueled by hatred. 
I've seen a very concept of hate crime dismissed with the hand wave, all crimes, specifically all violent crimes, are hateful. But there's a lot more complexity to the legal implications and the psychological implications that a person needs to do less to provoke violent action simply by virtue of who they are. Very specifically, the term hate crime is about the warped perception of the perpetrator, their ability to dehumanize based on race or sexuality. If you want to be an explosively physically violent bully who also claims they don't see color, that's a peculiar badge of honor to pursue. The main reason to claim against it would be that there are stiffer penalties incurred for hate crime. That is because the punishment is very symbolic. We do not want racism and homophobia in our society to get so fucking ugly that it leads directly to prejudicial violence. The language surrounding hate crime should have been explained more clearly many years ago. Because this measure of prejudice is a hangover from tribalism that has no place in a civilized society. Aside from that, though, this is very familiar territory. Ben is treated horrendously by Henry Bowers and his gang because they believe they can get away with it. And it's always the same guys. The same bullies that Stephen King writes about. The one bully in the world with a thousand faces and a thousand gang members who are exactly the same. And it's always this shit that happens to people who are the most vulnerable. That vulnerability spices up the actual act for the bullies which is pennywise that's this whole scenario and this goes unexplored in the movie which feels like a failing of the movie nobody ever lampshades it which is good and bad insofar as it's it's a reading but a lot of people will have missed that i say uh, one thing i did like is that when pennywise does uh do his bit in this it seems like a little bit of pettiness on his that what he does to Adrian is eat his heart out. Mm. And one thing that I think that both the the book and this this adaptation of the movie don't quite decide on is, yes, this is an echo and it bounces back roughly every 27 years. But is this particular murder of Adrian Mellon, is that the first manifestation of this cycle or did the very beginnings of that? that hate-fueled violence wake him up to begin that cycle. Hmm. Um, that's, an, that's an interesting sort of... Because reading the book, I was never sure. It's like, was Pennywise acting through them, or did he just jump in the canal and like finish what they started? And again, um, like Alex said, that's, that's something I feel that you could... That, you know, the, the this is how we got here, it's always been here, um, that sort of dichotomy is something I think they could have explored a little bit. I, I don't know. There's a, there's a lot of movie there already. It's but. it's a serious challenge because if you say it's all because of this terrible monster, that's the same as saying it's all because of these bad apple bullies. Mm. It's it needs to be something where it's like no, this thing itself is a, the rotten heart of America. Yeah. And we can't escape it. The best we can do is drag it out into the light. Yeah. And ultimately, I think that that message which I personally always got from the book. I know not everybody does. But the idea that Derry and Pennywise, or Derry and it, feed off each other. That he stays because there is food for him here. It's a feedback loop between the two. Mm. That, you know, this evil is here. That kind of people tend to be attracted to that area. And so you get a lot of 
bad people there and they're they're feeding off each other so i don't think it's either i don't think it's one started or the other their bad things are happening because he's there and because bad and because there's a lot of awful people there too to uh elaborate on what i just said about the best thing we can do is drag it out into the light the best thing we can do symbolically speaking is drag it out into the light and kick the living shit out of it tear it to uh-huh. pieces, expose it for what it is so that it shrivels up and goes back into hiding, the best we can hope for is that we kick it hard enough and firmly enough that it goes away for a very long time and takes a long, long time to regather strength. They did that sometime around 1942. It's taken this long for it to rear its disgusting fucking head all the way fully without fear. Mm. Well, that's the thing. So we need to hit it so fucking hard. Yeah, that's the thing about Mm -hmm. the the 27-year cycle, isn't it? It's the idea that every generation has its violences, has its, its cruelties, has its miseries. And as we get into an era where our memories of the previous generation's aggressions doesn't just go away because it's there for everybody to read, to see, to listen to, to pick over, to, in some cases, unfortunately, be inspired by. Let's move also on to the killing of Vicky. Uh, this is the, the little girl with the mark on her face that you just Jesus mentioned. Christ. I'm only going to yeah. mention it now so we can get the rest of the killings out of the way because this is one of the only other um, major ones. I honestly, I sat through, through through this bit in the movie, and I was like, you know what? Me and a whole bunch of other people rewatched the original. We haven't forgotten what Pennywise does to kids. Is this really fucking necessary? Does this really need to be drawn out for quite as long as it is? We get it. That felt like a weakness to me, insofar as there's no real variation or change. It doesn't say Pennywise is different now, and there's no... Like, we've been speculating for years, like, how the hell's Pennywise going to deal with all these kids with their heads buried in their iPhones? How's he going to get their attention? This could have happened in 1950, 1920, 1982. It, it, It was timeless, a timeless killing, ergo superfluous. And also the fact that... The whole point of Adrian Mellon and the fact that he kicks off the new cycle is, well, they discuss it in the book, he's quite a childlike person. He is the echo of Georgie. You don't need two. I don't think they needed both they did, these. They didn't show us Betty Ripson getting killed in the uh, exactly. first one. Exactly. Yeah. I, that's yeah. a really fine point, actually. Like they, they they showed us the Losers Club getting uh, terrorized, but they don't die. They showed us Patrick Hockstetter getting killed, mm-hmm. but he deserves it. And they, they showed- held back on that one. <laughs> uh, but they, they, they showed us Betty Ripsom's body though twice. Yeah. yeah. But that's different. That's not just going, okay, imagine if Pennywise lured a child under the bleachers and then killed her. And it's like, yeah, okay, we, we can imagine it. Is, is there any variation on this? But no, that Betty Ripson was used instead to uh, sow more unsettling seeds of, okay, so Betty Ripson's dead. Or is she? What's going on here? It's never really fully answered, which makes it even more unsettling. This is just... just the body in the closet. Yeah. yeah. It's her fucking legs. Yeah. <laughs> And she's still in this movie. She's still talking. Yeah, we found her fucking legs. Yeah. <laughs> I, I do have to say, Alex, mm-hmm. I, I and and I understand what you're saying, and I'm not here, you know, I'm not here to, I, that's a totally valid take. I do disagree a little bit on the scene under the bleachers. Mm-hmm. 
because I think the thing that has changed is Pennywise is more about using psychology. Hmm. Because kids are more stranger danger aware. Yeah, Vicky was exactly. Yeah, that's why I was thinking. I loved that scene, not because a child died, but because <laughs> Pennywise literally had he, you know, he tried to be. Hey, I'm a clown here. Don't kids like clowns? And the answer was no, because Vicky's not stupid. <laughs> like a lot of like a lot of kids used to be about uh, things that were supposedly safe. However, he then goes and says, "Oh wait, kids today." Like I said, they feel empathy for other people, so instead he played on that. Like, can't you understand how it uh, how it hurts to look different? And so I, I think it. My take on the the reason the scene is there is to to highlight that Pennywise is fairly adaptable, and it's it's a mirror of the scene with Georgie, but it's it's showing. This was how he used to lure kids. Okay, he's trying that again. Does it work? Let's try something new. So I, 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 I yeah. did find some reason for it to be there, yeah. personally. Also, I really liked the score during that one. And again, Benjamin Wallfish, I think I mentioned him during uh, Chapter 1, but I'll mention again, is a phenomenal um, composer. And it was like... It was like the score from Hook soured slightly, huh. that whole scene. And it was one of those, I could feel the magic that was being evoked, but he just would throw in just a harmonic minor every once in a while, saying, nope, that's not quite what we're going for here. Mm, it's the circus right, organ he's... winding down. Yeah. And he's very specifically using that um, the bells of Saint whatever the fuck that song. It's so scary. Oranges and um, lemons. Yeah, he's he's using that that melodic tune, but he's kind of playing it a little bit the way he plays the the Losers Club um, theme that closes out the film. But you recognize the melody subconsciously, and then, like you said, he throws in those those odd notes that just kind of get more and more um, just just more unsettling as Vicky gets further and further under the bleachers. Um, I, I agree with Alec and I also agree with everyone else. And I guess that makes me a crazy person because <laughs> watching, watching that, like you can hold oh, two oh, look. varying de- uh, decisions in your hands at the same time. Oh yeah. Like, like watching that is uh, one of the other most unsettling things in the movie because, you know, I can't think about anything other than Marion when I see that little girl and I'm like, mm-hmm. well, I'm just going to nope the fuck out of everything. But, <laughs> But again, I also um, this this kind of goes back to what I said. I appreciate about how it, you know, the first one is about feeling scared as a child feels scared, and in this one, the movie's really working overtime to make you feel scared as a as a protective adult. And because and they don't touch on this in the movie, the losers can't have children because of their interactions with Pennywise, and so they're the film is specifically trying to make them feel protective of the children in their town as well as relatives that they've lost. And so I think it's really effective in that sense, but it's, um, you know, what, what Keller said about you, the next time he watches the movie, I might be making a sandwich when this pops up because that is, yeah. Mm. yeah like, like you said, Alex, that is just massively unsettling to me. Um, I, I have, I, I admire it. I also kind of hate having to watch it. 
Okay, so um, moving on from child murder briefly. Um, the, Must the, we? <laughs> the, <laughs> the next uh, big point is about Beverly Marsh and her husband, Tom Rogan. Beverly is obviously a touchstone character for Sharon. Mm. So for me, like since Bev was my favorite character in the book and the first film, and I know how much she means to Sharon, I and because Jessica Chastain is a fucking amazing actress, I was like, right, now is the time to shine for old, older Beverly. Yeah. And this is something I'd really been looking forward to. And the fact that she's in this abusive relationship, I was like, there is so much deeply unpleasant but very needed material that needs to get laid out here and it by and large it didn't really it kind of gave us the cliff's notes quick version of it and it felt also kind of like we got the cliff's notes quick version of bev for me um when there could have been more she felt like almost a shadow of her younger self and that bothered the hell out of me as a Bev fan. Instead, I ended up like seriously rooting for Richie. Like Richie for me uh, as an adult was the star of this one. And with Finn coming back for some extra uh, material, but Bev felt diminished and it was getting off on a bad foot here. Sharon, do you want to shed some light on why the, this early scene is very important? I think for me, and I, I will say up front that reading this particular section of the book as a, as a teenager, early teenager, because I read the book when I was about 12 or 13, it, it traumatised me to a, a level that hasn't done me any favours, to be fair. Mm-hmm. And But on the flip side, it gave me a reading on how a relationship can be twisted so that someone who ostensibly cares about you and who you are putting your trust in can hurt you for their own reasons. So the friendship group that I was in at the time and actually one of the girls involved in this gave me it to read. They were very uh, bullying towards me and not necessarily in an overtly physical way, but there was an awful lot of uh, confidence crushing and constant put downs and diminishing me and making me feel like I had to stay friends with them because nobody else would have me. And that's what Tom does to Beverly. I was braced for this scene because in the book it is so horrible. There's a a later scene involving one of Bev's friends that I was really hoping they wouldn't even touch on, and they didn't, thank goodness. That's really horrible. Mm -hmm. But I think because I was so set for this to be in more depth and for us to find out more about Bev as a character and see how she'd grown as a person in how she reacted to whatever it was that Tom threw at her. By the end of it, I was kind of feeling like, that's it? Strangely, the Lana Lang version was better 
in terms like that is that's one of the very rare instances where the uh, TV movie actually kind of got to the meat of that yeah. a little better. And well, she, she, her comeback from yeah, being the, the way terrified. she delivers the closer on that scene, which is if you ever come near me again, I will kill you. Do you understand me? I will fucking kill you. That she turns his belt on him. Absolutely. Yeah. And that that essence of it was kind of what I was waiting for. And they they do there is a little bit of that she throws some stuff at him. Like I say the Cliff Stones version it, it feels like they rush through it quick. Yeah, and and honestly, I, you could probably boil my issues with this film down to this fact, which is that they they deliver on a lot of the uh the aesthetics and the and the visuals and the circumstances. of what the book gave and the circumstances but they miss the meat they miss the core the core story at work here is that beverly was uh, um trapped by her father stuck in this weird repeating cycle where he t- effectively turned her into a young version of her own mother and made her feel guilty for her mother's death, which they do at least touch on in the film, and uh, abused her. And this is a cycle that continues into her uh, adulthood, and so she ends up with this you know, terrible guy. They never mention the fact that, I think they sort of mention in one throwaway remark, they're both fashion designers and very successful at it. So she is effectively kind of manacled to him in this. It's not just that he's some guy she met at a truck stop. He's a very successful guy who clearly gets away with this abuse. And that's the thing she has to overcome. And the, the stepping away from him at the beginning is a very important part, but he comes back in the book. The big thing she has to overcome at the end, do you remember what it was? The thing that Pennywise puts in her head and makes her relive. She's on the toilet getting bullied by girls, and then there's a big old river of blood because... Uh, you know, of the, the the sink scene, and it's like, oh, remember that bit? And this was not in the uh, book, and I'm, I'm not saying it's not in the book, therefore it's bad. It's it's not correlating with Beverly's major issues and trauma right now. That is a child's fear. That is a, ch- a girl child's fear. I'm filthy. There's blood coming out of me. Jesus Christ! It's on a toilet. It's 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 kind of on the nose as it is. That's not the shit that Beverly needs to get over at this point in her life. And that you know, she eventually comes through to to Ben, and, and Ben loves her and loves her for who she is. But the way the scene is blocked because the 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 filth and the toilet are there in between them, it's like Ben loves her even though she's dirty and filthy, covered in blood, and covered in blood. That's again not really what Bev's about. Mm. Um, Fair, yeah, and she ends up sort of at the end. Sort of, I had a lovely dream. And all of that fire of Bev when she was younger, that smouldering January embers, uh, and the, the, the direction and the, the, the urgency of her character seems to have ebbed and slowed and gone out and diminished. And she just, she just, she's just there in the film, and she sort of like goes to, from place to place to do her thing, does a bit of sleuthing. But she's not... I think it's because the original child Bev was so fucking fantastic that this is jamming on the brakes and then they kind of bungled the ending in terms of it's about getting out of a loop of abusive relationships it is not about the blood end of continue go guys i had a Uh, slightly different um reading of the 
of the scene at the end where she's trapped by Pennywise, <clears throat> mostly because uh, a lot of the way she reacts as an adult is framed as the the hiding sort of thing. Mm. Um, and in this again, this might be me reading a little bit too much into it, but um, her being with someone who reminds her so much of her father is is basically her like hiding from unknown fears because this is a fear that she's used to. And I, I particularly, I, I do agree that it's, it's weirdly not about what you think it should be about um, when she's breaking free of that. Mm. I really just as a, as a standalone visual motif, uh, the image of a, a woman covered in blood kicking the door uh, open through the face of something that's horrible and trying to get at her, like including severing the fingers of like her father that's trying to get in there mm. um, by kicking the door open and then grabbing a uh, a young man who's being buried alive. There's like there's some really like powerful like almost pagan esque imagery from that as like a reverse of the uh, of the sacrificed king um, to to change the seasons. It's just this weird like. I'm not even sure it was it was intentional in any way. It's just like a, a very potent image. Um, but I agree that there's a there's one of the things that I think really harmed the potency of the opening is also a strength of not having to live in Tom's head because all the losers are introduced through someone else's POV. And so you're forced to sit in this total trash bags mind while he's describing Beverly and his abuse of her and all of this awful stuff. And you feel like you need a shower after the first page and there's so much mm-hmm. more. Oh God. Yeah. But I, then I what have Sharon phobias was, now that are directly related to the, that section of that book. <laughs> exactly. But, but the advantage of that is that when she does turn the tables on him, you get to sit and kind of like feel his, his fear at this situation that should have gone a completely different way going in a way that should not have been possible. And so that really just out the gate, Beverly is, is a, is a standout immediately because of how Stephen King does that. Um, and so losing, losing that particular point of view for the movie, it, it again, like Alex said, it makes it feels kind of like a cliff notes thing. Um, I do, I do appreciate that they had her involved in the finale at all, Mm. Uh, because so much of the ending of both the the kids stuff and the adult stuff in it is well here's the women they're either incapacitated like Bill's wife or they're just kind of sitting around or Kidnapped. they're doing uns- or or they're doing unspeakable things with children that they're way too young to be doing mm-hmm. so so I appreciate that Beverly gets to be you know one of the people taking active I mean she she gets to rescue a dude in distress like yeah. that's that's cool but you know, like Alex said, I think there's there's some of um, Sophia Lillis's like commanding sort of fire that feels a little bit blunted, whether that's by design because some things just mellow with age or just they they were trying to pack in too much into an already packed movie. I don't know, but it's not because I think of the lack of, of Chastain. She could have eaten that role if it was made to you. I think oh, yeah. for me, that was part of what made it so frustrating. If it was an actress, I didn't know, then I would have been like, well, maybe she couldn't pull it off. I fucking know Jessica Chastain could pull that off. <laughs> <laughs> that bit where uh, Pennywise is, uh, well, the, the clown who formerly uh, known as Pennywise uh, is uh, sort of, Whoa! 
pointing at her from the uh, uh, other end of the passage and she's staring at him. I half expected her to straighten up and go, you call that being menacing in a haunted house? And then sit him down in front of Crimson Peak. <laughs> ah, that's what I should be doing. Yeah. <laughs> It's not like this sort of drowning in blood inside the toilet cubicle replaces a major incredible scene in the uh, uh, book where Bev came full circle. It's not like it's taking away something amazing. It's just it could have been better in terms of writing uh, material that brings the character to her zenith. I wonder if... And this is this is an example of like trying to rewrite the movie, which I'm hesitant to do. Mm-hmm. You have the bit where... You know, Pennywise is riding on Ben's body. I mean, if he'd just been taking the form of her dad then mm. and, you know, or or her husband or someone where he's like oscillating between the two and like this is, you know, this is what you have to come home to no matter what. You're stuck coming home to this. And then she breaks the mirror of that image. I, I don't know. I think that might have been yeah, that's a good. way to. Yeah, I, I hate like, you know, I'm going to re- rewrite the movie and make it better. But I don't know. It just seems like there there was a way to do that. And it's it's hard to come up with that out of whole cloth when, like you said, there's not something quite applicable in the book they could have mm. just adapted. I was rather glad that they went the way they did with her husband because he's in the book. He is so he's so awful and so repellent and repellent yes and i think i i was because i was as soon as they started this her scene i was remembering reading it in the book and i'm like oh god i don't want don't 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 mm. don't so i i was sort of glad i was sort of glad that they did as little of that as they did and yes i do wish they had done more with jessica chastain's character but yeah like, like make her husband more minor please and thank you that's 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 better i i really See that that's a scene that would have made me be like, "Yeah, let me go get a sandwich." Yeah. Everyone's <laughs> getting sandwiches. Watching, yeah. this Watching this movie is just a constant rotating cast of who's sitting on the couch and who's in the kitchen. <laughs> um, also, uh, I think what it comes down to is, is that, uh, that we're, we're all fine with the scene. She just needed more fire in the in in the, in the yeah. comeback and. I think it's because they sustained him being weirdly sweet and supportive for a deceptively long amount of time. I was like, oh, he's maybe not so bad in this version. Maybe they've blunted his teeth. Oh, no, he's terrible. But he's only terrible for a fraction of a second, and then she reacts, but without that sustained fire to really balance that level of what feels like years of abuse in the book. Well, Again, I I, I do not want to come off like, Stephen King wrote this fantastic document and you (laughs) changed things. Oh, it's so But yeah, one thing as well, just to add to this, and this is, I'm not going to say that this is her fault, but we watched some interviews with the the cast where they had like the the young actor and the The older actor together answering some questions about the film and it was a great bit it's it's some fantastic interviews it's under the uh, the Vanity Vanity Fair Fair. YouTube channel and go watch it it's it's really good but one remark that Jessica Chastain made was that Bev goes back into an abusive relationship because her memory of being a child has been corrupted and she doesn't remember 
the abuse that she experienced from her father, mm. which shows a remarkable lack of understanding about how abusive relationships work and yeah. perpetuate themselves. Mm. You don't go back into an abusive relationship because you don't remember the previous one. You do because you do, and it's all you know. I, I know you're going to think this is crazy. I certainly think it's crazy, but I've got to go to Maine. It's, it's hard to explain. Um, that was Mike Hanlon on the phone. You remember the call at work today? He's an old dear friend. I have to... <gasps> shut up. That's what you have to do. Just shut up. Every day I make a deal of a lifetime for you. You want to run off to Maine with some old boyfriend? What do you take me for? Oh, boy. I've seen this coming. Oh, yes. You've forgotten your manners, little girl. Contradicting me here, smarting off there, and now this. Forgotten your lessons, Betty. Too long since last time. Put that thing down. I have to get out to O'Hare as fast as I can. There's some trouble. Some very bad trouble. It's come back, Beverly. It's come back. Remember your promise. You put these clothes back. No. You get into bed. No. Then maybe you can leave this house in two no! days instead of two weeks. Not ever, ever, ever again. Listen to me. If you ever come near me again, I will kill you. Do you understand? I will kill you. Beth. You need me! Bam! It felt in the film that with Chastain she was deliberately running away as fast as possible, more out of fear after asserting herself less. Perhaps they didn't want her too powerful too quickly, but in doing so it felt like she never really reached that level of fire. Let's move on to Bill. His arc seemed to be going back to guilt over Georgie and they exemplified this with a, 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 the new creation of Dean uh, in the uh, film, this, this new kid, so that because he doesn't have any children of his own, he's running around after this surrogate child trying to keep him alive. And there were two aspects of this that I really didn't like. One is that Pennywise just succeeded and killed this kid, but they dealt in illusions so much that I was disbelieving for a moment i was like did he actually kill the kid or is he just making it seem like he killed the kid and it's like cyclops dying in uh, uh, x-men 3 you're like <laughs> oh it must actually have happened because they're all acting like it happened and, and there's nothing to the uh, contrary of that which just felt like a terrible ignoble end to to this character uh, you know of, of of dean who effectively could have been like one of the new losers club in fact like the point is you keep that child alive and that's the desperate struggle that these adults have got to do you don't just kill him we've seen dead children the, the him being kept alive and imperiled is more spicy the problem then became for bill to get over the guilt of georgie dying he had to drown georgie and he's already shot him in the head with a bolt gun as a child. How many times are you going to have to kill your brother? The, the drowning of Georgie was definitely not Look, in the adult... brother's going to be a pain in the ass. The, the drowning of Georgie is definitely not in the adult section of the book. The adult section? The, you know what I mean. Um, it, it was like backpedaling this character back to this one previous point that he'd already done. He'd done this. He'd overcome it. Now... On the one hand, it's it's good and it's strong and it's powerful because it says that even if you deal with these and you rationalize it to yourself and say, 
there was really only there was nothing else I could have done. There's this thing gnawing at him, guilt that he actually wasn't sick that day, that he could have uh, dealt with it. But he's already kind of made peace with the fact that Georgie's dead. Actually killing this child to who was embodying his guilt just felt like a very ham-fisted way of doing it. Mm-hmm. Especially after we've seen several movies this year where in particular one character hugs his inner child and it's like make peace with your younger self mm. not and it turns out to be pennywise and that just felt like a cheap shot so it this felt like they had tossed bill down an uncomfortable pathway and he didn't get out of it clean mm. well the, the part of the reason why bill has to kill georgie at the end of the first one is to demonstrate that he recognises that this is not Georgie, that this is another manifestation of Pennywise, that Georgie doesn't hate him Hmm. um, and and wouldn't hate him. And that is the start of his journey to then forgiving himself. Hmm. So, yeah, I know what you mean about to make him go back and do that same thing again. It's like, well, he's already proved that one. So in it three, he's like, right, okay, I've shot you in the head, I've drowned you, Rasputin. Now we're going to go for stabbings, and I'm going to throw you out of a train. Like, how many times do I have to kill you, Georgie? (laughs) Into outer space. Okay, so, um, ladies and gentlemen, you don't necessarily have to defend this aspect. You could maybe just focus on an aspect of your, uh, of Bill's story, which was actually really strong. Um, I quite liked Bill, um, for the most part in this, in that while he seems to be reticent to really accept all of it, he's doing it because he feel he feels like he should be the natural leader. Hmm. And part of this is him not remembering it and falling into the role naturally. And I think McAvoy does a great job of making him have this sense about him that he's the one who makes the final decisions. So much so that some that he goes too far with it and has to be brought back like, no, this is not your responsibility alone. You need to rely on your friends because that's what we're here for. I like that he's willing to hear Mike out in the end. I like that they didn't do the whole that they didn't do the whole thing with his wife. Mm. Like he doesn't have marital problems this time around. She just thinks that his endings suck like literally everybody else. Mm. I also noticed that um, in the movie, the movie in the movie, mm-hmm. his wife's shirt is very reminiscent of something that young Bev would have worn. Mm-hmm. Yep, the the dress specifically that she wears, like. Um, at the end of it, chapter one, it feels very of a piece with that. Exactly. I mean, congratulations to him getting uh, Peter Bogdanovich to direct his film. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> I don't know why or why that uh, why that was played like a reveal, but okay, cool. But yeah, ultimately, I think that Bill works because he falls into his role kind of more than anybody else and more believably. And if it weren't for, yeah, still trying to deal with the the same trauma that we thought that he had gotten over, I think that he still does a great job of tying everybody together and leading this club of losers. I liked the idea of him having guilt over, I don't remember this being in the book at all, of him pretending to be sick. I thought that was a good thing to explore, yeah. and I, I liked that being – because you can, you can make a delineation between, okay, I am in denial that my brother 
is actually dead. Now I accept that he is actually dead. Um, okay, now that I have accepted that he's dead, obviously it's my fault, A, because I should have been there to protect him, B, because I made the active choice not to go with him. I think there's some good dramatic meat on those bones. I'm not sure if I if I like everything about how they played that angle. Um, but I again, like like with Bev, you have these really strong images of of him puppeting Georgie and just the the realization that just by coming back to Derry as an adult, he is now in danger of becoming the sort of adult that allows those things to happen to children and allows them to get taken by the monsters. And so, you know, I, I, I don't know if he had to drown, like not Georgie, but like saying, no, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be Pennywise. I'm not going to be puppeting these people. I'm not going to be turning a blind eye. And then oh, I, I also Effectively, he had to drown a uh, responsibility free version of himself. Uh, and, and as an adult, it's not the child version. He needs to, uh, invoke wrath upon it's and it's the version of him that would just walk away and turn a blind yeah. eye it's exactly. the idiot parents who let children um, in pouring rain out to play in the streets play the yeah. Yeah. What? Yeah. yeah dairy parents and springwood parents the fucking worst between them <laughs> they're they're garbage and yeah. the i i do remember there being a kid on a skateboard and bill saying watch out for drains in the book um i think it's it's a good idea to expand on that. Um, like Alex, I'm not sure if I feel that there was a need to to kill this kid horribly in the mirror house, although it was an effective like scene of tension. Um, it was but- a nice way of showing you're panicking, you can't get to this kid and protect them. That is a really good way of exemplifying adult fears, which a lot of which are based around, I can't protect this person. I can't be there for all, for this person all the time. Mm. You know, even if you're not a father, just like you'll have people that you're responsible for. Specifically because it's just him in there and you get to see so many reflections of him, but he's still alone. And it really kind of drives home the point that, you know, of course, he makes the the vengeful decision to go after Pennywise by himself because he doesn't want other people to get hurt. But the scene just showed us, the viewer, no, it's not going to work because he can't succeed alone because there's just one of them. He can only come at it from this one angle. Um, the other thing that I really like about James McAvoy is that there there is a lot of material here for um, the the other supporting cast members to get to play with. Mm. But because A, James McAvoy is such a well-known movie actor, and B, because he is doing this combination of the stutter with an American accent, which I think he pulls off really well, mm-hmm. you, you still hang on his every word without him having to always command a scene the way that Richie is always the funny guy or that Ben is just um, this like um, deliciously voiced man meat mountain or (laughs) I put down here Ben is a snack (laughs) (laughs) or whatever else I think that there are a few ways that they use the fact that um, I I, I think that like like we said they, they could have done more with her but they do a lot with just the fact that Jessica Chastain and James McAvoy are in this movie to kind of sell the the leadership dynamics of the group and James McAvoy really pulls that off well. I I would also add on Bill um, and and tagging on to what I said earlier about you know about maturity and that they couldn't they couldn't defeat it until they grew up. Given that you forget things when you leave Derry, and he basically forgets that he had a brother that was killed. Hmm. 
and it's mm. almost like leaving Derry arrested them emotionally kind of at the point they were, you know, after, after they, after they wounded it, you know, as kids and left. And so it's not, I don't know. It's so much them coming back to a thing that we think they'd already defeated and he has to defeat it again. I think it's more, there is only so much you can do as a child with your own emotions because you're you have limited understanding, you are limited, you are not mature enough, you know. Like, and you can okay. He dealt with that part, and he dealt with yes, Georgie's dead. You know, he he dealt with that. But I think a lot of times there's things in our lives that we don't fully understand, and we can't fully process and deal with and let go of until we are adults, or at least until we're emotionally mature. Mm-hmm. So I, I tend to think it's a second piece that he had not been able to do yet. That, that would, That's my take. I think that does lead into one of my theories about how this has had to shift because of the shifting in time period from the book. In the sense that if you look at how... Uh, Stereotypically and traditionally, people have addressed and dealt with the shit they went through as kids that has stuck needles into the rest of their life and affected everything that's happened to them as they've got older. For a certain generation, it was you dealt with it on your deathbed or not at all. A generation after that, it was you maybe started to address it in your 50s when your parents passed away. Then it was, okay, in your 30s or 40s when you can possibly afford a therapist and your own kids are starting to um, re-evoke some of that old pain in you. And now... There's much more emphasis on, okay, the stuff that happened to you when you were 8, 9, 10, you are going to be given the opportunity to deal with that when you are 17, 18, 19. So people are getting to a point where they're addressing their issues much younger and and being given more of an opportunity to then go forward in their lives with those issues having been brought out into the open. And we're only now starting to see the the impacts of what that does going into adulthood with actually a really fucking good grasp about how to deal with the things that happened to you when you were a kid. That's a possible different direction they could have taken with the film. You know, we said at the beginning that they went off and started, you know, doing Rocky-like montages of dealing with their emotions... They can't do both. They can't completely forget everything that bothered them as kids and also become more emotionally complex dealing with the shit that they've got in their basements. You kind of need to look back to be able to move forwards. So a version of this that would have been different, different from the book, different from what we saw, would have been uh, them coming back and going, okay, so Pennywise, you want to scare us, but we've been dealing with shit you haven't even heard of (laughs) the the six of us you cannot beat this Uh, and if obviously that takes away the horror aspects they need to be kind of doughy they need to be kind of pathetic they need to be out of their depth as exemplified by the library scene in the original 1990 version of it harry anderson is in the foreground and uh pennywise the tim curry is in the background like up on this balcony he's like hey you and he's just like screaming and he's trying to just like well when's he gonna be back is he gonna be back anytime soon he's like yeah you're gonna die 
Ah, you son of a bitch! And he's just like, uh, 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 yeah, thank you so much. I can, uh, it's just like the best. It is a great scene. All while Harry Anderson, who's the only one that can see this, is himself covered in blood. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, it's awesome. Yeah, you useless piece of shit. Get out of Derry. You do it and you die. So th- there needs to be a sense of feeling like these guys are too hapless to be able to take this guy on. There was a sense of artificiality about the we must go and find our totems because there was a point when they were like, let's just go to the sewer now. And it was almost like they could probably have done that and cut the movie a lot shorter. Mm. But there was there was just other things that they could have done to get to that breaking point that stop. Let's all go on vision quests. Felt like it put a whole Mike, extra... why are you giving people hoops to jump through at this point? It's just unnecessary. <laughs> Go on your side quest. Everyone got like a Mass Effect 2 uh, loyalty quest. And <laughs> shit. And Eddie's wasn't finished properly, so he was Clearly. black and white. Mm. Shit. Um, I mean, we laugh, but ultimately that's kind of what Mass Effect... Mass Effect 2 is this story, Mm. but you've really got to work at getting everyone to deal with their difficult pasts. And it does take time, but each of those individual loyalty quests is some of the best parts of the game because it exposes their character. Mm. So uh, for it to... like A lot of this stuff they were just kind of like riffing on and going, right, so we're now writing... This, like old scenes from the book where Bev does go back home and that's definitely a, a quest but they were having to write new shit about encountering the leper and his, and his mum tied to a chair for Eddie mm. and Richie's new secret which needed a lot more exploring mm. well this is that so many people are complaining about the length of this but for me if anything it felt rushed mm. it's it's not so much the length as the misuse of that time, time for things that didn't feel right. I've had people tell me, don't say Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was long. It wasn't. Yeah. That, which is ridiculous. Oh, well, it's thank like, you. It an, felt long. <laughs> an 82-minute film can feel long if it feels like they're misusing the time to do things that don't specifically engage you. It could be an absolute stone-cold classic that is venerated if that language doesn't speak to you. It's, it's not so much that they're misusing it. It's just that the alchemy that they're spinning is not directly engaging you. Mm. And in this case, it felt like there was a lot of different unexplored areas of... Like, if we zoomed out of the map and looked at the video game of It Chapter 2, a lot of that's still sort of murky and in shadow. And there's, like, lots of that that stuff in the map and then quests not quite finished. And it could have been cleaner. (laughs) Now I've got a vision of Mike stood in the library going, go over there and get me that book. But it's right right there. Ah, the book will teach you some things. Okay, so I actually have another question here. Um, uh, One thing they changed was their reason to stay and fight, which is poor Stan killed himself in the bath. And Bev, because the thing they changed about the first one was she got kidnapped. They went, ah, there was a reason she got kidnapped. She's been given a vision of the fuel chart. Did she actually have that in the book? No? Okay. No, she does not. And And the the whole taking her and suspending her in the deadlights thing they have stolen from Audra. Okay. 
Well, rather than stolen, they changed the position of that. Mm. I'm still kind of okay with them doing that with Bev, mm. uh, insofar as Bev got a really meaty story in the film, and mm. she had to deal with her father, who was actually more intimidating in many ways than Pennywise, because a Pennywise you can just destroy with impunity. Mm. A father you're manacled to, and society says you've got to be a good girl. Mm. And if the kids don't have a really, really good reason to go and confront Pennywise beyond hatred and beyond revenge, if they're actually trying to protect and save someone, then their reasoning has to be, let's do this thing and kill this clown, which should be their motivation in the second one. So they gave them a more personal, immediate, time-based motivation in the first one. It could have been someone other than Bev, though. Frankly, it would have made the most sense if it was Stan, that would, however, lay down worrying, unexplored themes of abuse and suicide. So it's still not clean either way. However, because Bev was kidnapped, because Bev was given these visions th- from the deadlights, they changed their reason to stay and fight. Bev saw them all killing themselves out of despair and fear or whatever within the next few decades if they didn't deal with Pennywise now. Why might this be kind of a problem for the film? Anyone? I mean, on the one hand, it makes it seem like they're doing this out of a sense of self-preservation. There's a lot of things they have to try and fit it. There are a lot of this movie. Um, was really trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. Mm. Um, like that's why so much of the middle section, they're like, okay, let's impose some narrative structure on it because so much of the book is just wandering around. Maybe I'll remember if I go over here in this theater mm-hmm. and maybe that'll help somehow because turtles, I don't know, Stephen King did a lot of coke. <laughs> because <laughs> turtles. But I don't know, Brendan, coke but, is a hell of a drug. <laughs> But this is this is one of those areas where I think they you know they were trying to add a bunch of mechanical reasons for why it would make sense for why they would stay here and do this and and okay you had this encounter with Pennywise you will eventually die somehow horribly because that's how the cycle works kind of makes sense um, and it's it's problematic in that they're they're making it a selfish reason but then also every now and then they'll have the losers be like peace out I gotta go because I'm so scared um, so it's. <laughs> It's kind of like at war with itself. But on the other hand, I also really like that it's this is very much sort of about the modern generation and with the way they've updated it. And not to get, you know, too into the weeds here, but if current generations don't do something to fix the way that certain things are going in this world, we're just going to die because we won't have a planet anymore. So maybe we should, instead of trying to kick the can down the road, we should do something now because we could just be dead if we don't. Um, I, I like that it, this, it's kind of, you know, putting responsibility on um, older millennials and younger Gen Xers to, yes, we have to fight so that, A, there's still a world for the kids, but B, because maybe it'd be nice to live to see 80. I don't know. Wow. See, I'm actually okay with um, their initial, the initial um, impulse to be selfish and to have to have a sort of, uh, this sort of personal stake in it, because part of their story here is that they've forgotten that connection to others. They've forgotten that sense of empathy and goodwill, everybody except for Ben, 
who is made of empathy, and we'll get to him, I'm sure, at one point. But, um, yeah, almost all of them basically have forgotten this, and part of this is them recalling that better time that, yes, they had to fight an evil fucking clown, but they also had people that cared about them and loved them and they loved in return. Mm. It very much feels like this quest is even though they are separated this quest is about them learning to come back together and learning that they are not alone in the world similarly i would actually have been okay with the uh, idea of it being posited to them to begin with and it would actually have been better with a follow-up of you know what i know that we're probably going to kill ourselves but i gotta go and live what what kind kind of life i can live because uh, we got to get the hell out of here so that then either bev or um bill or even better richie you know walks over and draws a line in the sand and says okay we can go now and we might be able to live for some years. But if we don't kill this fucking thing right now, then it's going to be kids like us being killed forever. We've got to do it now. Just some, a scene which actually was rousing, uh, like, like getting everyone together. And it actually would be way better if it wasn't Bill, mm. you know? Because like Bill was the one at the beginning in, 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 in the first one going, help me, help me to kill this thing. Both Jonathan Brandis and Jane Martell, um, fantastically, inspiringly. And we know that they gather around Bev. But the idea of we've got to do this because it's going to kill the kids, that's the adult fear. That should be the adult fear. Yeah. It's that, going that, to kill the kids. That's a very simple, very powerful reason to stay. Well, that's that's and something they, it is there. It's just yeah. never really conveyed in that way. It's certainly explicitly stated in the in the book because they have this discussion about the fact that that it might actually be part of some kind of natural order that it's mm. been there longer than humans and that it's part of what's meant to be there. But the conclusion that they reach is that's irrelevant. It kills kids. That is bad. But that's the thing. If they run and they live, that's the begin. That's the first, you know, run and you will live. That's, that's the temptation. If the temptation's always there to escape and just back away from this thing and actually live, that's a real challenge. If it's run away and die or stay and die, it's like, oh, fuck it. Let's just go kill the clown. Has anyone got a gun? Because I feel like a gun would help. <laughs> I think Actually, doesn't Richie say anyone got guns? Something like that. But you pointed out before that the that Pennywise's weakness just seems to be physical trauma. That was what Jenny Nicholson said. <laughs> you know, I, I brought my, my friend Eco Uwes. He's pretty good with his feet. And <laughs> we're just going to, you know, take him into the sewer and let him finish Pennywise off. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Just uh, I, I, the the, um, I the, the threat of suicide. Series also with the guns. I think that was Harry Anderson. That's a joke that Harry Anderson's character in this movie would tell. <laughs> oh, the world's most famous comedian. This guy sucks. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so actually, there's another thing we got in the memories. Um, one of the things that, and this is jumping forward to the end. One of the things that affected me most about the end of the book and made me feel very, very melancholy was that their memories began to fade. 
at the end. It was almost like what they'd done almost didn't matter. If, in fact, if you remember from the book, like Derry, a big chunk of Derry was destroyed. It went on fire after they killed it. It all sinks into it all the, si- the it, hole. Like symbolically, this disgusting thing is taken out of the world and Derry reacts in a very physical, violent way as a result. But they start to slowly forget and so they all go their separate ways and begin to forget each other. That's a really powerful ending. And they change that to be, I don't know, I completely remember everything. And there's ups and downs about this. Do you guys want to explore the ups and downs? For me, I think it's a, again, it's a different way in the modern era of looking at how you heal from trauma. Because once upon a time, the received wisdom was very much you are healed from something and better from it when you can't remember it anymore Hmm. and now it's very much more that if you've been if you've been traumatized the idea that you have to forget that in order to be healed from it is actually a little bit dangerous because that's not how the human brain is meant to work the point of trauma is that's your uh, that's your brain trying to protect you in the future Mm. if you forget the traumatic thing what was the point of it It, it, if the human race forgets it it will happen again exactly exactly and in actual fact the 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 way that it's kind of seen that you heal from trauma now is that you do remember it you do remember the traumatic event but the point is it doesn't affect you the same way that it used to it doesn't throw you back into a nightmare and cause you to relive it Mm. you can remember it but the sting is gone so they effectively challenge the initial forgetfulness exactly. that they experienced yeah. by saying, but the better version of that is that they remember. Okay. Exactly, yeah. So for yeah. me, I actually really liked the fact that this time they get to remember. Okay. I, I do as well, especially if you're going to spend two movies about the power of friendship and togetherness, and then they just kind of go their separate ways and forget about one each other. about each other. That sounds like the... That sounds like a terrible ending to me. That's not what I like. That is the ending that Peter Bogdanovich is complaining about Mm. at the beginning of this film. And that Bill has to learn to accept that uh, what he is dismissing as the just happy ending uh, that everybody wants is, in fact, the better ending because it allows the characters. I think Sharon hit it right on the head there. It allows the characters to actually change and this to have meaning. Mm. Not to mention the fact that it's going to make Bill and uh, sorry Ben and Beverly's uh, relationship discussions in future really awkward when they meet people and they're like, "So, how did you guys meet?" Uh... <laughs> yeah, we, we've never we, remembered. We we, we don't know. <laughs> Jesus, we've got these well, great big blanks in our life. I felt it important for the the film to revisit the idea of of the memories that we allow to define us because that's how that's how the movie starts and I I also kind of really like the um the standalone melancholy of specifically the way Stephen King writes Bill calling Mike and them both mostly sort of maybe remembering they they realize they have this connection but they're not quite sure the depths to it and they're struggling to like it, was it Richie? Yeah, Rich. Yeah, um, like that's that's really really potent writing. But 
again, kind of like the way they have Stan's letter, they've, they've created a bond that you can't just sort of forget about and still feel like the the bonds between these characters mattered. A, apart from what Sharon was talking about with how we understand the process of trauma a lot differently now than we did back in the 1980s, the concept of being able to keep in touch with people is a lot different now than it was in the 1980s. You know, then you've got someone in your Rolodex and you've got their phone number and maybe it's their current number and you've got their name and you called them five years ago or 10 years ago and you had dinner with them, you know, 20 years ago. And maybe you kind of remember all the things you did together and maybe you don't. Whereas now we're we're connected with people on Twitter and Facebook and you can keep up with like, you know, my high school friends now know how old my daughter is, even though I haven't like talked to them in person. Like we're just a lot more easily connected with each other and then therefore the memories of our past than we could have possibly been 20 or 30 or 40 years ago. Although I do still look at my friends list on my Facebook page and go, sorry, how do I know all these people? Mm. (laughs) You should have killed more clowns with them then, clearly. Also, although, uh, but two really good aspects of the film work against the if we leave, we'll kill ourselves side of it. One, forgetting about things is now reframed as this is a bad thing. The going away, walking away, turning your back, washing your hands, forgetting about it, this is going to happen away away from me. Actually living and living a safe life and doing that, that is what that is. That should be the thing that they're tempted to do. If they're going to go away and kill themselves, that's a completely different kettle of fish. The other one is it takes away Stan's decision. The way he frames it in the letter, that's a decision he made. He didn't just do it because he went insane. Now, there's issues with the logistics of this decision. Since Stan decided to do this to save everyone else now, he doesn't actually know the magic that's working here. It could be that the seven of them making their decision sealed a pact that he effectively breaks. He could actually have made it impossible for them to kill it. But in his head, it works. And this version of the story reframes that decision. It's a really hard thing to pin down because dealing with suicide is always really tricky. But yeah. but not just reducing Stan to he was scared and went crazy and killed himself uh, was, was, I think, the right choice to, to yeah. go with. Um, yeah. I also think that having them remember is an important aspect to this because so much of it, you know, we talked about this a little bit with Chapter 1. So much of the point of Stephen King's It is... You know, oh, halcyon days of, you know, when America was great and your childhood seems like that because you forgot all the bad shit. Yeah, there was psychopathic bullies with flick knives in every corner. (laughs) And then just having everyone forget at the end because we solved all the bad shit seems kind of to work against the the thematic Mm. hook of that that story. Especially since the book was written so long ago now that it's like, remember how great the 80s were? No, they were fucking horrible! (laughs) (laughs) Yep, yes. the 80s sucked. They were the echo of the 50s. We've solved all the racism and homophobia, excuse, excuse me. me. We've solved all the racism and homophobia. Yeah. And the sex of... Excuse me. <laughs> Do you have a pride flag? <laughs> Sorry, that's a combination of way too many jokes, folks. It's a good one, though. Okay. Uh, speaking of which, uh, Bill Hader as Richie Tozier, and uh, uh, I think, like I say, my my, my favorite ca- character in this now, um, and unexpectedly, I, I love Bill Hader, and I was really looking forward to seeing him in this. But he is a straight up star in this. He's never 
really been a leading man before. He's not conventionally handsome, not like Bill or Ben here, but it takes more than that to make you a star. He has dramatic action chops. He is on fire in this film, repeatedly. Oh, yeah. It's a it's a quiet fire, but he's there. And um, Sharon mentioned it very briefly earlier, and we can now go into it again briefly. There are people online saying, oh, Richie told you it wasn't gay. <clears throat> wasn't said out loud, therefore it didn't happen. Wow. Like, He's wearing the, the, the fucking shirt that, um, what's, that Jesse wears in... Nightmare on Elm Street 2. Yeah. During the dance sequence. Well, Jesus that, that, Christ, he's gay. That's an Easter egg. I mean, for a start, I, I can't believe that guys who would normally put together completely disparate bits of information for their Snoke theory would now not get what isn't even subtext, but text of a movie because they didn't say it out loud. But more specifically, Richie's deep, dark secret... If it's not that, never gets voiced, which leads to me to believe there are quite a few deep, dark secrets that aren't getting voiced out there, if that's their conclusion. Mm-hmm. He carves his initials into the fucking kissing bridge. Yeah. I think we like, could... Like, this is a, an anti-theory which is being debunked by us right now. We could just move on to the fact that uh, uh, Richie is, yeah. is definitely gay, and, and that's fine. And uh, that that Bill's frustrated performance throughout is a really excellent take on that, I think. Just His chemistry... Yes, not uh, yeah. Skarsgård. <laughs> <laughs> Too many bills. Yeah, and not James McAvoy's character, Denver. No. Oh my god. Yeah, yeah. sorry. <laughs> I should just have said Hader. Yeah. He is... And he is real. I was Wolfhard, kind of... Looking... actually, now that I mention it, because he, he took some of that uh, weight as well. Yeah. The arcade scene was mm. really. I was it, kind of looking out for this because I'd I'd heard that there was a a a subplot involving someone having like queer characteristics that hadn't been in the book, and so I'd sort of like gone and done the math essentially of like okay, well who who was most likely from the and just kind of settled on Richie, and so like seeing Finn Wolfhard do that, which mm. is some really surprisingly subtle acting for a young actor to have to go through. Mm. Uh, yeah, big big ups to him. It adds scope to that scene in the original where he's like, can I brush up on my Street Fighter? And like you're like, are you thinking mm-hmm. about that kid that you played Street Fighter with that one time? Did this happen before or after? Are you currently playing Street Fighter with him? Nah. So that did lead to Pennywise mentioning Street Fighter, which felt weird. It felt like your grandpa talking about Halo. Remember a few years ago? Remember a few years ago? As if you played albums backwards, there were satanic messages. Now they're subliminal. Isn't it nice to know Satan's keeping up with all these new technological achievements? What a little busy beaver he is. I picture him at Radio Shack every Monday morning. What new things do you have for me today? The bit that I really appreciated about it was the fact that the in the earlier versions of the story, it's generally implied that if anybody is queer-coded, it's Eddie. Mm. And to make that sideways move so that it's less obvious, less uh, stereotyped, and therefore more engaging, I thought was a really good choice. And also, there's there's never any implication that Eddie 
couldn't be that the 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 uh, connection that Richie may have felt between them was not in some way reciprocated, but it's just that the focus is different and it feels more authentic and more uh, more like it's coming from a place of actually understanding what that feels like to be uh, to have a, an aspect to your personality and your sexuality and your identity which is incredibly crucially important to who you are but cannot be expressed because you don't know how the way they have him and eddie bickering like an old married couple Mm -hmm. in the even in the first movie feels (laughs) like like alex said it's got this extra extra depth to it and the and then of course the way that um they they carry that forward haters um like he's he's really good by himself and dropping little you know comedic bits in, but he's also got um, the the rapport he has with James Ransom is also almost eerily perfect for how they were as kids and feels again like you were saying like some a, a connection that that you can't really voice but still feels natural in a way that takes you to some corner of what your heart would want. Um, and it's definitely something that teenagers tend to like as as someone who bickered like an old married couple with with the person who I would marry years before we were even a couple um, that kind of rang really true. Yeah, um, I also quite like the fact that Eddie is always following in Richie's footsteps uh, when Richie says I'm driving away. I've got a life to live outside the Chinese restaurant. Eddie's the one who follows him yeah. when Richie says nobody here's afraid of um spiders and everybody else has the hats on has the shower caps on eddie's the one who takes it off mm-hmm. eddie's the one who shares the uh, hammock with him in front of the lost boys poster <laughs> yeah that yes. was subtle <laughs> exactly <yeah. laughs> so i can see why richie would have that connection with him and you know whether whatever eddie is feeling one way or another Richie definitely feels like this is the guy who uh, has my back and therefore as a as a queer kid he could also see that like, he could also um, parlay that into just kind of falling in love with him. And I think that's one of the reasons why I liked the fact that it wasn't explicitly said out loud that it was subtle and it was implied and like you said it is it's obvious enough to be text but i think if there'd actually been a coming out scene for richie it would have made it feel less authentic to me at least yeah when they're in the when they're cleaning themselves off and richie starts crying and everybody comes to hug him you could tell all of these characters know what's going on here mm. like this is this is not this is not something that went over Bill's or Bev's or Ben's or Mike's. He's got to break the cycle there. Head. No, they all understood what was going on. Like, it's, I don't understand how other people didn't. It's going to add dimensionality to Mike and Will in Stranger Things as well. Like, even if we don't, if it's not going to go down that way, that there's going to, there's already an extreme intensity in that particular. Um, uh, friendship Mm. i can point you in the direction of a zillion fanfics that Mm -hmm. consider the same thing yeah yeah and they do enough to to definitely show especially characters like bill being very canny about relationships um the the shot where 
where they're looking for his glasses and both Beverly and um, Ben dive below the water and Bill's looking around. He sees them and he gets that knowing look of, okay, so, so they're together now. All right. That's, that's how it is. That's how it's going to be. All right. Like they, I mean, they obviously know each other well enough to understand those dynamics. And so like, like you're saying, that feels like them comforting someone who's lost a love, a lover, not just a friend that they only remember they had two days ago. That because uh, yeah, they all lost a friend. Yeah, yeah. The two friends. Yeah, Richie lost something more though, and mm-hmm. that's why he is the focus of that hug. I I loved the uh, quarry scene, the uh, diving back into that water. That that's not in the book at all, and it felt like it really needed to be. Mm-hmm. It's uh, that there needed to be some uh, healing at that stage, mm. and it's uh, that I know what that's a replacement for though. Mm-hmm. Because the whole point of that is that it's them coming together again after the uh, after the terror of what they've just been through yeah. to have something that reminds them that they are all still together and they are all still friends. Yeah. And bathing in water is a lot better than you know the yeah. uh, <laughs> alternatives. <laughs> Listen, it was the moral code of the time, and we're all prudes. Apparently, according to one very agitated listener. Dear God, hope you got the letter and I pray you can make it better down here. I don't mean a big reduction in the price of beer. But all the people that you may in your image see them starving on their feet because they don't get enough to I honestly expected there to be some kind of obviously it's it's a big Cthulhu level thing but they they hinted at the turtle in uh, with Lego and a couple of other things in the uh, first film I I honestly expected there to be a bit more of a okay so this shooting star was it and there's something else out there that's even bigger of mature in the turtle do you feel feel that there was a way that they could have been put into the story that made them more aware that they were doing, they were almost not so much being manipulated, or doing the bidding of a of a, a creature of uh, that that keeps balance, but just that there was something else out there other than pure evil. If you've got Satan, you've got to have God. There's got to be a heaven, Jacob. There's, There's just got to be. be. The Chakapiwa seemed like the the obvious place to go for that to have yeah. some kind of if only totemistic representation during one of the visions that they have. And again, this, this goes into the, into the, there was a lot of fucking movie there already. Like that's a two hour and 50 minute yeah. film and it covers a lot and it gets to then start bringing get, a cosmic turtle in there. You're like, wait yeah. a second. And I was, I was really glad to see them go as cosmic as they did with the origins of it mm. and, you know, play with that and, and going, going back to the, you know, even so much as them seeing the deadlights descend, it's not just through any hole. It's a maw filled with teeth all through the throat. Mm. And and so you get the feeling of like, okay, well, is this is this whole like pocket the 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 thing, or is it just the lights, or is it just whatever? But that I mean that that again, this is I'll rewrite the movie and make it better. That's where I would have put it as just something that's going on when Mike and Bill are tripping out over the. It's mm. just a route. Uh, yeah, yeah. For, when you're tripping out, you can put in all kinds of imagery that people can talk about on YouTube, but doesn't need to be explained in the film. 
Yeah. yeah. I mean, basically what we got was the turtle in the classroom. Yeah. And that's really – and, you know, I, honestly, I haven't read the book, so I have no investment in the great Atuin being part of this movie. <laughs> um, Had to be said. Okay. Um, but – It's Maturin, so it his brother. Not, yeah, Maturin, <laughs> Maturin, his brother, exactly. That is, so it really – again, it doesn't – as somebody who has no investment in the book whatsoever – I don't see that it was necessary. I think that, you know, again, it's a question of scale here. And if we have realigned the ritual of Chud to be about facing personal demons, mm-hmm. then let we can let Maturin go and just have, you know, a couple of turtle references in the, in the frame occasionally. Yeah. That being said, I think the ritual of Chud probably should have been all of the things that they were doing and just made that the battle of wills aspect yeah. of it. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Instead of the ritual doesn't work. This is the fucking ritual. One thing that I had never really uh, thought of and, and never really gets exactly voiced was hang on a second. How do we know the ritual of Chud works? If it worked, the fucking thing would have been dealt with by the uh, native Americans. Mm. Uh, and uh, as we find out it, wasn't they got close they almost completed the ritual so really it's on blind faith that it will work at all it works in principle but that's that's the whole... then it oh, thinged them mm. that's, that's the whole the best point. Way and, and for me this is another example of what i said earlier about the putting in uh, a visual reference or a, a, an explicit recreation of something that was in the book without having grasped the the purpose of it and the the meat of what it's meant to be about in my own humble interpretation i've obviously never been able to sit down with stephen king and say okay stevie is this exactly what you were talking about but the the, the fact that the when they started talking about the ritual of children i was like oh my god it's in here i'm so happy that they've included it and they're going to explore it and oh wait oh Okay, because the the bit about it that really frustrated me was when it got to the point of it doesn't work, it's a placebo. No, it works it's a gazebo. because it's a placebo. Yeah. This is battery acid, you slime and now you disappear. It's it's a ritual that they piece together out of out of a book that makes no sense to them, but they make a childish sense out of it and put together something that works because they believe it will, not because it's an ancient uh Native American double blind tested scientifically proven here's how you get rid of it it's it works because they have faith that it will and and that's the point behind it so to set all of that up and then pull the rug out underneath with oh actually no it's not that's not what it was at all and mike screwed you all over because he was trying to pin his hopes to something that was never going to work in the first place that was probably the only bit of the whole thing that I outright did not like. It didn't throw me completely out of the movie by any means, and it didn't spoil the whole thing overall. But if I could pick one thing to remove, it would be that section. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah, it's 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 awkward because then it tries to transition into them still doing the ritual, but in a different way, because they're still trying to harness the whole belief thing, um, which is a, it's a very different sort of, um, battle of wills then you don't scare us anymore from the first movie uh and i i really appreciated 
elements on the this is battery acid is now this kills monsters if you believe it does. Mm-hmm. Um, beat, beat motherfucker. Yeah. And so there's there's a lot of, you know, uh, there there's like part A that felt ritual of chud E and part C that felt very much like the bits that they were piecing together and making the ritual of chud work. But then because they'd tried to impose this narrative structure uh, and make something that is very ephemeral into something that you can put on film in a sensible way, they then had to make an awkward transition. And I'm not sure that it exactly worked. Mm. And that's not something where I'm sure there's an easy answer for how do you make that work? Because the ritual of Chud in the book is insane. And I, <laughs> what I do you do when you find you... a demon? Grab its tongue. Sorry, what? <laughs> well, yeah. You grab its tongue, grab its tongue, with, tongue. and bite it, and it bites your tongue, and you've got to tell each other <laughs> jokes. Wait a minute, how does that even work? You've got teeth over your Never tongue, sixty-nine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> with Pennywise, rather you than me. Yeah, I, I believe that it's sixty-nining because you've got to say it with your tongue between your teeth. But um, <laughs> very true. So it's unfilmable, basically. And then you throw it into its own eyes. Uh. <laughs> there's also there's a couple of leaps of logic in in this like series of action sequences that were required to kill it. Um, one point, Bev says, "Smaller. We've got to make it smaller. How about we run out this way, and then it has to make itself smaller to run and get us." And it's like, no, 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 no. You've come down here to kill it. It doesn't have to chase you. Once you leave, it can then go. Well, oh, thanks very much. And then I'm just going to go back to sleep. <laughs> Thank you for stopping disturbing me. Oh, you're coming back in then? I'm massive. (laughs) She needed to couple it with, right, but we can't let it stop chasing us. Just something to suggest we know that it has no reason to follow us unless it wants to kill us. So we have got to get it fucking mad. Speaking of mad, there was a bit in one of the interviews that I realized um, that James McAvoy said about Bill hating it. And the reason for its downfall in both the first and second movie is that it overshoots with Georgie. It kills Georgie and then torments Bill about it. And Bill is more angry at it than he is afraid, which creates this ability to face it down. And that is again, what they should have, you know, harnessed for this second one of like, it's not about saving ourselves. We are fucking furious that this thing kills children. And now it seems to be graduating to relatively young people Mm. and, uh, you know, would probably have no qualms in, in eating anyone vulnerable and fuck this thing. It's a bully that anger needed to burn brighter. And I think people would have been more satisfied on some subconscious level if it had. Fair. Yeah. No, that, that I, I agree. I think that while this accepting of fear and, you know, I guess bullying the bully to death is fine and good, but I, I could see, you know, having more of that anger behind it would have helped kind of spice up the scene a little bit, just kick it up a little. Especially since the, the ending that they settle on is, you know, uh, a group of more savvy younger adults are basically ratioing this motherfucker to death on Twitter. <laughs> the, the analog for what they're doing. Um, that is that uh, that is coming from a place of you know, no, we're not going to take it. We're mad as hell, and they they play the like the adults are playing this as as angry. So that would have I agree, Alex. That would have been a, a neat uh, transitional bit of mm. you know, no, you motherfucker, you killed my brother, and that doesn't scare me. That pisses me off yeah richie's angry he rips his fucking arm off yep 
again, like it's it's there. It's there in the subtext. It's there to be read. And I think the reason people are going, eh, it wasn't that good, is that it's not making it so clear the way that the kids did. Because uh-huh. the kids spoke in much broader, simpler terms, whereas the adults were more timid, not quite sure about where they were going. And now took I have a to lot kill this fucking clown. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. And honestly, that's a really good way of summing up what I keep saying about why I'm drawn to sci-fi and horror and superhero movies and mythology and fairy tales, things that speak in what many people call broad strokes and bright colours, but for me, that's the bit that makes it engaging. Because in a drama where everything is dialed down and muted, it's much harder for me to pick those things out. Hmm. And I think it's time to thank our top-tier patrons this week. So thank you to Joel Robinson, Benjamin Biddle, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, Connor Kennedy, Brian Novak, Evan Jankowski, Sarah Montgomery, Dan Hepner, Johan Clayson, Tyler Long, Joe Gasiga, Greg Downing, Tim Rosinski, Christopher Wolfe, Kat Esman, Cassandra Newman, Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, Joseph Gluck, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Luksch, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Dashler, and Lorraine Chisholm. Those folks at the $5 level on Patreon right now can listen to our 45-minute quick review of Mike Judge's Idiocracy, where Sharon and I talk about whether it still holds up. If you tried to frame something like this now with a similar standpoint, what you would end up with is incel humour. Why is it that all these Stacys are hanging out with all these chads and we're over here not able to get our end away? And this coming Saturday, we've got a 45-minute quick review of Hustlers, one of the films of the year. We bring in Paul Shotton to uh, talk about that one. Scafaria wanting to present the women in the film as authentically as she could. And ultimately, you can't present a group of people from an industry that is as misrepresented and uh, maligned as the sex work industry if you do that from the outside in. If you're not yet planning to see Hustlers, you might want to make those plans. And you can hear why it's so good on the School of Movies Patreon. There's a bunch of stuff we uh, haven't uh, talked about, uh, and I'm going to throw them out for a quick-fire round, okay? Okay. Uh, Mike Hanlon, uh, still maybe the most underserved character, yes or no? Yes, but it was nice to have him not be, I'm the magical Negro, and now I am not doing anything for the rest of the story. Yes. (laughs) I will take no further part (laughs) in proceedings. Okay, so uh, Henry Bowers has come and gone. I guess I'll... No, actually, you know what? I will not sit this one out. I'm coming. Absolutely. Yeah. That was good. Good uh, choice. The the other thing that I, I love that he's always right, even when he's manipulating people, because sometimes you just, you know, even just to get someone to listen to you, you have to bend the truth or manipulate them a little bit. And like that creates a feeling of desperation that feels in keeping with Mike's character without making him seem like 
a stereotype. Like the there were there were a couple times when they were you know showing its version of his parents' death, and I was like, oh, collar pulling. Are we going? Oh no, that was just it manipulating things, and it's you know the the point is that people see people of color this way or expect to see them this way, not that this is like an actual. So yeah, I, I appreciated them trying to break the mold a little bit with that while saying, just fucking listen to people of color. No, I don't care if it sounds ridiculous. Listen to them. That was nice. Isaiah Mustafa, mm-hmm. he played that madness just on the edge, that this guy has been going nuts for 27 years, and it's just starting he, to... He stayed hit. in Derry for 27 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah it works really well. I love the idea that he's actually going to finally travel at the end and he just wants to get elsewhere. He was going to go to Florida where the nice people live. Um, Okay, so uh, was I right in thinking at least one of you, uh, your favorite character might be Ben Hanscom? I uh, feel seen by Ben to a tremendous degree. Okay. That that um, was... I know Karu felt that way as well. Okay. Um, he had to step out for just a moment, but... He yeah, um, <laughs> as as someone who at Ben's age looked a little bit like Ben in terms of being kind of a marshmallow, and now I'm you know I'm nowhere near like that you know that chiseled. I'm I'm closer to um, Rocket Raccoon's remark about being one sandwich away from fat, but <laughs> still like much much more like in shape, but also feeling like you never outgrow being a a soft pudgy person who's been like who's been given body issues. Um, I kind of feel, I kind of feel Ben a lot. Um, and I, I thought that he was, he's, he's kind of tricky to, to thread because I, I enjoy that this movie sort of makes him a dude in distress, but also makes him kind of a, a, a very canny sort of counterpart to bill. Like he's the one who sees a lot of stuff, even if he's not, the the charismatic leader that Bill is. Mm. All right. Uh, what I particularly loved about Ben, uh, not only did Jay Ryan just appear on screen looking like a fucking kiwi bendy cat cookie batch, but, <laughs> uh, but also he is absolutely the heart of the losers. He is pure empathy, pure humanity. When uh, Mike is trying to explain things at the Chinese restaurant. He's the one saying, let's just hear him out. Let's listen to him while everybody else is freaking out. When uh, Richie starts to lose it, he's the one who goes up and talks to him and tries to calm him down. Ben is, and again, Ryan, I think, does a phenomenal, for a guy who came off of Australian soap operas, uh, this what? guy is, Like Guy Pearce. Yeah, yeah, Jay Ryan. He's 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 basically known for doing um, neighbors in oh, yeah. Australia. He has these wonderful facial expressions that you know he absolutely wears his emotions on his sleeve, and most of those emotions are either Bev doesn't realize that I was the one who wrote that poem, or this person's hurting and I need to fix it somehow. Mm-hmm. And I loved that about this portrayal. I mean, even the first thing we see is people try people trying to be more capitalist and him saying, no, it's not about being it's not about making more money. It's about making the best building that people are going to want to be in. It's about making my clubhouse. I have the best buildings. <laughs> sorry. Yeah, sorry. 
I also <laughs> quite like the misdirect in that scene, that they start out with the design being introduced by somebody that you're obviously supposed to think is Ben. That was the guy who played... like... That was the guy who played the kid in the 1990 TV movie. No! Oh, I'll double-check that. Seriously? That's genius! Hold on, let me just check. Yeah, big guy. Brandon Crane, big guy, is how he's listed on IMDb here. That is fantastic. Yeah, no, that's he. Yeah, that's why he looks like... Uh, that's why he looks like Ben. Oh, my God, I love that. Only now I really regret the fact that they didn't also get Seth Green and Emily Perkins and um, all the other yeah. kids, with the sad exception of Jonathan Brandis, obviously squeezed mm. in there somehow. Maybe a photo. Uh-huh. Tim Curry cameo also. Yeah. Some old guy. Well, if you recall during uh, during our chapter one podcast, they said that Seth Green should be Richie. But I, I, don't get me wrong; they did the they made the right choice. Absolutely, but... yeah. No, bringing anybody back in a, in yeah. a significant role would have been a mistake. Mm. But uh, I agree. Little, little cameos would have been a nice touch. Yeah. Speaking of little cameos, nice to see Stephen King there mm. uh, in the uh, cameo with the silver, and it was such a good uh, bit that I was like. He should really have cameoed in more movies. I mean, he plays like a, a, a priest in a film where he's like ashes to ashes, dust to dust. I think, was it Pet, Pet Cemetery? Cemetery yeah. Fucking piece of shit. Yeah. And in, uh, you murder of children! No! <laughs> yeah. Hate in that film. Creepshow, he was the, uh, the farmer guy. Yeah. Okay, so, okay. He has cameoed in a bunch of his films before. But it feels like he should be the Stan Lee of Stephen King yes, films. obviously. I should. agree, yeah. yeah. Also, why is he not an executive producer on this movie? Good question. He doesn't need the money? I don't know. (laughs) Um, Just to briefly go back to Ben as well, the... Because one of the things that we discussed was, did they cast somebody who was a little bit too good looking for Ben? But he was just really, really good looking. Yeah, but I actually, on, on reflection, I like the fact that they got somebody who is visually drop dead gorgeous. Mm hmm but doesn't necessarily have a massive oomph of charisma because part of That was of never the, really been in the first place. Exactly. Part of the point He's of understated. Beverly ending up making the choice to, to be with Ben at the end is that that's her version of breaking the cycle. Her father was abusive and authoritative. Tom is abusive and authoritative. And part of the reason that she is drawn to Bill initially is because he is authoritative without being abusive. Being able to break that completely and be with somebody who is not constantly trying to lead her and take charge is is her moving away from that pattern. He reminded me of a younger Josh Brolin with neither the worries nor the menace. Mm, indeed. Yeah. Well, he also, um, to tie into what uh, Sharon was saying, uh, Ryan specifically, even though he's got an incredible physique, it's never shown as like being something that gives him all these great physical violence um, like abilities. Mm. So the the other thing with um, with Beverly is that he he takes active part in things, but he's not a violent person, even though his like his stature and musculature, like you would think he'd be bench pressing Pennywise. Mm. You know, she, she doesn't go for someone who commits violent acts, even though he has the strength to do so. It feels very much like he's developed that specifically to protect and shelter instead, Mm. which is what he does with the clubhouse and and all that other stuff. Yeah. And we, we keep saying that we want to see more examples in movies of men who can be, 
supportive. can be supportive and uh, kind and understated and still be cast as worthy of affection and and participants in relationships and this is a prime example of that yeah yeah it makes me upon second viewing it made me think about the first movie of seeing him here and just the fact that as you know the younger ben like he seems like such a sweet kid and such like a guy you just want to you know as a as a, a as someone who could potentially be old enough to be his parent just someone that you would want to love and nurture and take care of. And there's a lot of that person still in him as an adult. And again, yeah, bringing out the, the empathy and the, and the, you know, the kindness and all of this, but he's also got this, he's got this adorable shy little grin in the first chapter that just made me want to hug him so bad. Mm -hmm. And they don't really go into it in the film. In fact, I don't think they do at all. Um, But one of the differences between Ben and the other losers is that his mother is actually quite nurturing and caring in her own way. And in in a way that is not underlined with anything vaguely sinister, which a lot of the other's parents are. Um, they came from outside of Derry, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, they moved to the area. So yeah, maybe that's it. Maybe she hasn't been grabbed by the thing yet. Um, mm-hmm. But that therefore kind of makes it logical that Ben would in would from her get that nurturing and and caring. Uh, on the note of Henry Bowers, I like the fact that even though we've seen him be uh, mistreated horribly by his father and then for him to take bloody revenge, and it's like, oh, poor Henry Bowers, he was a horrible piece of shit in the first movie, and he grows into a horrible piece of shit and a pathetic one as an adult, and then dies ignobly, and that's, you know... That was the story That of was him. the story of him, and it's it's sad but very forgettable because he did nothing but make people miserable with his life. And that's an analogue for Pennywise, who by the end is just sad and pathetic, and it's like, shut up, clown, I'm not fucking laughing. It's like beyond the point that you're scary. It's obvious that you're sadistic, but that doesn't make you captivating. Your loneliness doesn't warrant your actions. Everybody's lonely. You don't have any more jokes left. Fuck off. Die. Which is something I feel like I'll be saying a lot this year. (laughs) (laughs) On that bombshell. um, (laughs) uh, Do you think that there might be potential for a chapter three? I hope not. Please no. No. Please no. Please, no. I mean, I know they want a Chapter 3 because now this is a billion-dollar franchise for Warner Brothers, but no. Just just fucking make Salem's Lot instead. Yeah. They're good, they're gonna, if they're going to do dip back into this well, they're going to do a prequel. Hmm. There, there's chapter a whole zero. lot of time for them and to it's gonna be about It's going to be about a bunch of... Um, uh, what, what's the tribe there? Chapequa? Chakapiwa. Yeah. Chaka, yeah. It's going to be about a bunch of Chakapiwa people and the white savior who comes into town and defeats it temporarily. Hooray. <laughs> you uh, it does feel like they deliberately down. held off on, on looking at uh, a lot of the, like, who the hell really was Pennywise. They hinted at it and then they didn't go into the history of it. And there's plenty of dairy history to, to go into. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, they're questions that don't necessarily need to be answered. It's not necessarily going to be scarier or more interesting if we know the answers. 
the, the reason we love it is not necessarily because of it. It's because of the losers. Yeah. So and you they're ain't given to- me a prequel where we find out that Robert Gray... It was this poor, lost, lovelorn chap who oh, could never quite form a relationship, and as a result, it all went to pot. Let's tell Pennywise's no, story. Uh, <laughs> or fucking not. Okay. He was just sad that his colony died, and he, he said, you know what, if we, uh, if we enact this lottery, we can save half our citizens. Yeah. And- <laughs> <laughs> But you, they've they've proved now that it is entirely possible to do a successful Stephen King movie. So if yeah. they're going to do sequels, I don't want an original It Chapter Three, but I would like to see them rework some other of Stephen King. Especially movies. something which has been adapted poorly in the yes. past. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. Salem's Lot would be great. Yeah. Um, f- oh, they could do The Shining. Debbie, you had something to say about Mike. It occurred to me the fact that, unlike most of the other losers, his trauma that kind of makes him more susceptible to Pennywise is more of a systemic trauma. And losing his parents and um, that, you know, they died presumably because of the racism of the community and all all this stuff. And it feels, and the fact that, in, at least in the book, Henry Bowers is so much the embodiment of that. Yeah. And it's almost, it, it. I read it as the fact that um, Richie comes in and kills Henry Bowers kind of as the final, you know, the final blow to him. It kind of took to me like, black people cannot end racism white people have to own we have to own our shit and own our past and whatever and say okay we we as a people did this we need to own being better and you know making the necessary systemic changes and you know letting them tell their stories and whatever but taking the action we can take to say yeah let's stop this shit and I, I felt it went, it paired well with the fact that this is all about, you know, recovering, acknowledging your traumas and dealing with them and letting them go and trying to be better. That's very canny of it's going to be uncomfortable and it's going to probably make you feel a little bit sick after you do it. But you can't just put, you know, you can't just expect other people to solve that problem for you. Like being an ally doesn't just mean like not doing it. It means yes. actively fighting against it. Yes. One other aspect I absolutely loved was that there was a scene taken out of It Chapter 1 after they've been split up, after Eddie's broken his arm, when they're at a very low point and they're divided and scattered. And it's a montage of them trying to get by without each other. And it's an excellent piece of the film. But to get there, they had to sacrifice the scene of Stan Uris's bar mitzvah where he gives that impassioned speech about realizing what it's like to grow up and I played it back during our It Chapter 1 episode because it was at the time a deleted scene but it's now undeleted it's in It Chapter 2 they found a place to put it back in that felt like a win especially for Stan who needed one I feel like despite the initial disappointment with this one, it's going to be one people go back to and explore and uh, think about a lot later on. And uh, it might be more of a grower. 
That first one is stone cold amazing. Mm-hmm. It's it's just going to be a tougher sell this time. Yeah, but if you know the next Stephen King remake that they do is Dreamcatcher. You oh. get out of my head. Technically, which, by the way, is, is the subject the of Dreamcatcher. To it, <laughs> yeah. Does it take place in Derry? It does. They miss each other by ten years. Something like that. Yeah. yeah. Oh. Um, but yeah. Yeah, folks. If you want to see a really, really bad version of this, watch Dreamcatcher. Mm. Or don't. Or, or don't. don't. <laughs> or just don't. But listen to yeah. the We Hate Movies podcast on Dreamcatcher yeah. it's fucking hilarious clickety clack so they're they're walking I, I believe on train tracks yeah, they're, on yeah. Yeah. they're like, really just doing this they're what? coming from a pie eating contest oh I can't have them find a dead body again um, they find a mentally challenged boy <laughs> and then they're they're chased by a psychotic clown oh no that's a problem <laughs> oh I've already done psychotic clown right so- <laughs> they find a haunted hotel no I'll get it. Oh, oh. wait, there's an evil cop. No, evil dot. No, uh, wait, I'll maybe find all it. the cars come to life. <laughs> oh, wait, and there's no. a big Mack truck that rules them up. No, uh, oh, geez, Steven, you really just wrote yourself into a corner. Oh, can a comet fly by? <laughs> well, you know what? No matter what, they'll have mental powers. I'll write that first. Because <laughs> <Cool. laughs> well, establish the mental powers, the rest of it writes itself. Clickety clack. <laughs> Three out of five people in Stephen King's main have telekinetic powers. <laughs> Absolutely. There's a lot of shining going on all over the place. It's the most supernatural state in the Union. <laughs> they, like, when, during the revolution, they had all the Mainers come down to do, like, uh, pyromancy on the British fleet. <laughs> oh, wow. Because why not? Yeah, sure. I, Stephen King, I just fucking wrote your next novel. <laughs> And maybe the pyromancers own an evil car. No, uh, <laughs> an evil carriage. Maybe they bury a kid in a pet. Se- no, oh, j- dang it! Yeah. I, I, having been such an avid Stephen King fan as a teenager, I was away from his work for quite a while, and then Dreamcatcher came out, and I was like, oh, a new King. I am gonna. I'm just gonna devour this and be Not so like happy this. to be back in this world. Not and I read like it this. and went, <laughs> what? The actual fuck. And honestly, I don't think I've read anything he wrote after that. Hmm. Wow. And even he is like, he, he, he'll even apologize for that, apparently. He's like, he's like yeah, that, that did not work. Should have yeah. made that one and a you know, You wouldn't apologize for the Langoliers, I mean. Yeah. <laughs> I just, you know, of all the terrifying Cthulhu beasts in the world... I don't think shit weasels was the way to go. <laughs> that was the original title for the book, but then they changed it to Dreamcatcher. Shit weasels. Oh, it's exactly what it sounds like, folks. It really is. It's the only film with scary farting. It really is. And then fart fart. The woman farted again. Uh, Clickety clack. It's like it's like it will give you nightmares and make you terrified to go to the right. toilet. Oh no. Oh no. Anyway. <laughs> Before we before we go, would you folks like to pimp your shows and also recommend a good one, like a good episode, so you can point people to this is something you were proud of. Uh, start with Brendan. 
Well, you can uh, find my long-form written work on normannerd.blogspot.com, where I have a review of It Chapter 2. You can find some of my shorter stuff on synapse.co, that's C-I-N-A-P-S-E.co. Most recently, we looked at The Dark Crystal um, which, because of the Age of Resistance show. And, uh, you know, I, I am definitely a fan of lots of forms of the dark crystal so you can read lots of people's take on that movie and oh exciting um yes i I was very excited to uh to have that be a potential thing it was a kind of this it's happening gif moment Mm -hmm. um (laughs) and uh you know you can you can follow me on twitter at blc agno and you can also hear me on some of these shows i i think people should listen to it chapter one if they liked this and for some reason didn't listen to the school of movies on it chapter one because that's that's a good one Thank you very much. Uh, and uh, Caro and Debbie. All right. Um, you can find um, uh, our work on sequentially-yours.com. Uh, we're a little bit behind on reviewing uh, movies, but I think our Black Panther review was excellent. Or um, I'm still – it's it was early in there, and the technical stuff is not great. But you know what? I still think my max um, – Close reading of um, the comic, The Max, is probably one of my best episodes. Well, two of my best episodes. It's a two-parter, but uh, that would be my favorite and where I would start. All right. The Max and Black Panther. Yep. Yep. Fantastic. Thank you. So that's sequentially yours and Synapse. And that is it from us for now. Mm. We don't know (laughs) if or when we'll be back in Derry, uh, but... We'll probably be back on Stephen King sooner rather than later. So I have been Alex Shaw. And I've been Sharon Shaw. And school's out.